Well, <clears throat> crazy uh, coming out the holidays, kind of getting back into the routine. I don't have my cool timer here, but I can, I can see. <laughs> when I see you doing this. Um, <clears throat> well, like I say, coming up the holidays, uh, last time I preached, I had a couple months where I knew where I was going to be preaching, and I got to prepare, and it was pretty much I had the sermon written out before the birth of my son. Um, Preparing for a sermon in a couple of weeks during the holidays with a newborn tended to be a little bit more hectic. Uh, <clears throat> but, and I don't know if anybody got that uh, cold that was going around or still going around. Yeah, it was Aaron's fault, everyone. Uh, no, I, I got that and it lasted about a week. I'm still getting over a little bit of a cough. And as we all know, I'm a guy and common flus and colds tend to affect men more than women, uh, the symptoms. That's, it's a proven fact. And that's why it's sometimes people say that men act more um, like a wuss when it comes to <laughs> flus and stuff. It's because it affects us more. It's, thank you. So, um, <clears throat> so here we are at the end of 2014, going into 2015, and it uh, just kind of flew by. I cannot believe that we're already in 2015. And, uh, you know, we're really... This is the last sermon of 2014, and we're really blessed. I, I was thinking about the, the sermons that this church um, has been given at this pulpit, and you know, we're really blessed to have some of the men that we have had in this church. Uh, I think you would be hard-pressed to go to any other church and, and be able to call in the elders to all preach and, and them to actually be able to do it. Um, so we're really blessed at this church, and I, I'm really thankful for that. <clears throat> Uh, so coming off the Christmas holiday, the only thing we really got left to look forward to around this time is a new year. And uh, it's a time of reflection, a time of, a, of assessing. Uh, we reflect on the year that is going away, uh, looking at what made it good or not so good. And oftentimes we see success in forms of accomplishments and, and growth. <clears throat> uh, from there we attempt to analyze and assess the year to come. And we make for ourselves uh, little goals, ourselves New Year's re resolutions, we call them, that last about a month. And, uh, but we try to make these resolutions in areas that we desire to grow and better ourselves in. So I kind of thought I would just kind of go with that. This morning, uh, examination is what I would like for us to do this morning, is to examine oneself. I would like for us to examine ourselves Examine 2014 through the lens of your Christian walk, your spiritual walk. <clears throat> we focus so much on our social uh, lives and, and uh, financial or health standpoints when it comes to the new year, but somewhere along the way, our, our Christian walk tends to kind of fall in the cracks. <clears throat> I would like for us this morning to examine the milestones of 2014 in respect to our spiritual growth and let me ask, how much different is your Christian walk in 2014 compared to 2013? I want us to look at growth. This morning we will be in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll be starting in verse 11. I'll give you all a minute to get there. <clears throat> about this I'm sorry we all there now we're good I don't hear the page flipping we're going to be flipping a lot of pages this morning so um, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 and 14 about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. 
but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we humbly, I humbly come before you, God, in great need of the power of your Holy Spirit to speak through me, God, because even if I was so well prepared and equipped and had the most elegant words and speech, God, it would fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts, God. So, Lord, would you uh, meet us here this morning? I pray that, God, you would proclaim through me your word faithfully, purely, fearfully, God, and boldly, that you would edify your saints, that you would exhort us, and that, God, you would convict of sin where it needs to be convicted, because that is what you delight in, not in sacrifices, but in brokenness and contrite hearts, Lord. I pray that you would calm my nerves, Lord, and that you, Holy Spirit, would speak through me. Let it be not my words, God. This is not my time to shine, Lord. This is not, this is not me that we want to hear from. It, it is you. It's why we've come. So, Father, I pray that you speak to us. Make our ears attentive or prepare our hearts. I thank you for this undeserved privilege, God, of being able to proclaim your truth. Uh, we love you. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory, O Lord. Amen. <clears throat> During World War I, it is speculated that Nazis um, used to use high levels of fluoride in the water in their concentration camps to reduce an individual's um, power to resist domination. This was the thought behind it. Making him or her submissive to domination. Uh, I guess the idea behind it was to take the fight out of the captors. Take the fight out of the enemy. I don't know how much truth there is to that. There seems to be different views uh, to the validity of that claim. But nevertheless, hence the title of my sermon, Something in the Water. There is something in the water that is being flooded into the mindset of American Christianity today. Something that has indeed taken the fight out of our church. It is this idea and acceptance of mediocrity in the Christian lifestyle that it is okay to be a mediocre Christian. And I know when I just come out and say it like that, we kind of maybe shake our heads in disagreement or that, you know, that's not the attitude. But after careful examination, most Christians' lives here in America would approve otherwise. And perhaps some of your lives would prove this claim true. The text in which we are in, the author of Hebrews was dealing with this exact same problem. It's an amazing how relevant God's word is. Thousands of years of being written and, and it's still so revel, re, relevant today. The church is still struggling with the same issue. Let me give you a little context. The author of Hebrews begins this letter by going to the history of relationship that uh, God and, and the nation of Israel has. And he's speaking to Jewish believers, hence book title Hebrews, and he, he talks about God's relationship with the Jewish nation, speaks upon the supremacy of Christ over angelic beings. He talks about Moses and Abraham and, and the children of Israel, all things that are very important when we read through them, but when we look at this book, we see the first four chapters up until this point, five chapters, he's teaching believers Things such as that Jesus is higher than angels, higher than Moses, higher than high priests. He's teaching believers who Jesus is. Again, let me say that again. He's teaching believers of Christ 
who Jesus is. And it just kind of blows my mind, and, and, he, and I believe it blows his mind when he stops to realize what he's doing and why he has to do this. And he stops and, and uh, picks up right here in verse 11 where we'll be in. And this is where I would like to see uh, my first point, stagnant growth. Stagnant growth. Verse 11, about this, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing the author begins to plunge the depths of Christ and, and who Christ is, this, their Savior. He begins to, to go into the depths, and suddenly he just comes to a point where he, where he stops, and he realizes like he's speaking to children. One ear, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's like they're sitting there nodding their heads, but rolling their eyes at the same time. Some of you who have teenagers know what this is like. <clears throat> an immature person that sits there, they're given instructions, but they've become dull of hearing, dull of listening, dull of receiving instructions. And sadly, this represents a vast majority of the people in the church today. That word, dull of hearing, it means sluggish. In fact, it, it's a polite and nice way of saying stupid. You've become sluggish. You've become stupid when it comes to hearing the things of the Lord. <clears throat> the writer wishes to teach these believers the deeper things concerning their Savior, but cannot because they are still struggling with the elementary truths of their faith. They haven't grown past that. But here's the thing, they have no desire to. They have grown dull of hearing. They had grown comfortable and complacent with their ignorance and stupidity and did not desire to move on and grow. And you know what? I've experienced that just in being part of planning this church. I've experienced and heard people tell me that who have come to visit that your church is nice. It's not for me because uh, some of you guys teach doctrine. And uh, you guys, some of the things you guys teach, it's, it's kind of over my head. And, uh, I, you know, and the crazy thing is, is that doctrine is put in a place to simplify what the word already teaches. So it's kind of, it's weird to me that people say that. But I personally have had people tell me this, that I, I like your church, it's, you know, it's nice, but, you know, the things are just kind of, you know, over my head. <clears throat> and so they go to a church that accommodates their childish behaviors. And there are many to choose from out there. You know, they'll go to church as long as the sermon is entertaining and appealing and services done by noon. <clears throat> Long gone are the days where Sundays were entirely devoted to the assembly of the saints. And the church is all too guilty of this. Christians who have grown dull of hearing that are okay with being stupid in the things of the Lord, refusing to grow out of their mediocre faith, are catered to by much of the church. Therefore, you have many churches that are full of mediocre Christians that have to be fed mediocre sermons, which result in mediocre worship and consequently a mediocre view of the Lord. Well, Cam, what about those who, who come to church who are new believers? What about those who... who don't know a lot. They've only been saved for a little, little bit. How are they supposed to grow if they can't understand what you're, what you're teaching, if everything's over their head? Now, don't get me wrong. There comes a time and place where we need to sometimes step back and, and get back to the fundamentals of the faith. You, know, you never grow past learning about the cross and, and the atonement, ever. 
What about those who are, who are trying to learn and, and trying to grow and, and you're talking about doctrine and you're talking about theology? How are they supposed to grow? Let me tell you something. That Christian is what you are there for. It's called discipleship. And we should all be doing it in one aspect or another. It is not just the primary job of the pastors, of the elders and leaders of the church. It is all of our responsibilities to disciple. And that's what I have such a problem with, this seeker-sensitive movement that is so prevalent today. It's this, this idea that you know, we're just going to give and feed the congregation milk. Just give, them, just give them a little bit. Just give them that baby food. So that the person who is, who is looking for God, who's not really saved, that we can appeal to them, that we can feed them. I'll tell you another thing. The pulpit is to be used to feed the sheep. That is the purpose of the pulpit. Not to feed the potential sheep, the goats that they hope to be sheep. That, again, O oh Christian, is our responsibility. It's called evangelism. I uh, titled this first point, Stagnant Growth, which is an oxymoron. Yet I hear of stagnant Christians. The ones who say that their faith or walk has become stagnant. And this is just as much as an oxymoron. There can be no such thing as a stagnant Christian. You either advance or you recede. If you will not go forward, you will go back. Charles Spurgeon used to say that that backsliding did not begin when a person experienced a series in days and weeks and months of, of uh, not being in the word and not being in prayer. He said the moment and the very day that you go without reading the word of God and being in prayer, your backsliding has already begun. And I would agree with that. Absolutely. The very moment that we can say to ourselves, I can go today without being in communion with God. I can go today without being in his word. I have other important things to do. You're backsliding that very day, that very moment has already begun in your heart. I want us to look now at the expectation of growth. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. By this time indicates to us that there had been plenty of time from their conversion to this point. This is somebody that has been a Christian long enough that they should be able to teach it to others. This is not your on-again, off-again Sunday attender. This is not your, your Christmas and Easter service attenders. The ones that our author addresses here are the ones that ought to, the ones that ought to be teachers but have become dull of hearing are the ones who sit in those pews every Sunday. And as I'm thinking about this right now, I'm starting to think about some of the teachers that they had. I mean, this is the Hebrew church, so they most definitely heard James, the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus. They probably heard Peter speak. They may even heard the apostle Paul speak. And we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. But they had these great teachers Ones who have walked with Christ and they have become dull of hearing. Now, not everyone is called to be preachers or public speakers, but it should be the goal of every Christian to grow in their faith to the point that they can teach it to others. It is the only way Listen to me. It is the only way the Great Commission is fulfilled. Uh, Vadi uh, Bakum, who is a pastor down in Texas, illustrated this best. And if anyone's a friend with 
Phil on Facebook. You probably uh, may have watched the video. And it is a, uh, he does a really great illustration. Now, I'm about to paraphrase here. Um, but he says that it is only in American Christianity that we tolerate mediocrity. And no other field in our culture will we be acceptable to be mediocre. If someone has been doing something as long as some of us claim to be believers, they should have the ability to teach it to others. Um, my example was Bruce Filburn, who's not here today. But Aaron might be able to answer this question. You, how long has your dad been painting? Since, uh, 1971. 1971. If I went to Bruce Filburn and I came to him and I said, Bruce, I want to learn the traits of painting. I want to become a painter. I want to paint. Can I come alongside you and, and would you teach me? I guarantee you right now. He said, oh, yes, brother, yes. I Come on along. Bruce, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I had to do it. But how ludicrous would it be for him to say, oh, oh, brother, I, I, I can't teach you anything about painting. Been doing it 30, 40 years all I know is wall, paint, brush, apply. I want to be grandpa. <laughs> that he, he says, I can't teach you anything. There's nothing that if you were to watch me all day, there is nothing that you can learn from me. How ludicrous would that be? But you know how many in this room who have claimed to be Christians for 10 or more years and if a young man or young lady, if you're a woman, were to come up to you and say, I am new to the faith and I would like to come alongside you and would you disciple me? Would you, would you help me? grow in my Christian walk? Would you, would you lead me in, in understanding how to read my Bible, how to study my Bible, how to grow in my faith? Can I come alongside you? How many of you would be willing to say, yes, definitely? Definitely. How many of us are willing to say, as Paul says, be imitators of me? Which is a scary thought when I think about it sometimes because I know me. But that should be our goal. For someone who's a new believer to say, yes, be imitators of me. To come alongside me. I will disciple you. I am able to disciple you. If you watch me, you will see what a Christian does. Someone must though would say, oh, I'm no preacher. I'm no pastor. That is unacceptable. Never more, and I truly believe this, ever since the flood, never more has our world been more dark and more need of the gospel, that the, the light that the gospel provides. And never more has information been so readily available to us. And never more has the light of the church been more dim. Biblical ignorance is at its highest peak. And it does not seem to be slowing down. That's exactly where the recipients of this letter were. Not only had they not grown in their walk and knowledge of God, they had, had to be taught it again. The basic principles, the oracles of God, they, which means the elementary sayings of God, they were incapable of any higher degree of doctrine, like a baby unable to handle solid food, they needed milk. 
Let me give you a perfect example of this. And I'm going to do this one of these days. I'm, I'm going to stand outside of just a random church, and I'm going to survey 10 people, and I'm going to ask them. And I want you to ask yourselves, give me a scriptural definition of the gospel. And I bet you out of 10 people, one, maybe two, will be able to give me an accurate scriptural definition of what the gospel is. The closest of all I'll probably hear is, it is the good news. Unacceptable. <clears throat> if we learn nothing more than what we learn from someone on the first date, how many of us would be married? How many of us, if we learn nothing more in the first week of our jobs, a year later, would still be employed? How many of us would call ourselves, whatever our hobbies are, skiers, hikers, whatever, if we only did it once? Now here's the thing, our jobs, our family, our hobbies, these are all aspects of our lives, important aspects, granted, but aspects nonetheless. Yet, our Christian life, here's how uh, Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, it says, when Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Christianity is not something we add to our lives, but it is to be our lives. We see everything else in the respect in, of, of our life in Christ. We see our families, friends, job, time, money, all in respect to Christ, who is our life, as Colossians says. Christ, who is our life. Examine yourself, Christian. Does this describe us? We just got done celebrating Christmas, the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. And, <clears throat> you know, the Bible really doesn't give us much information on the life of Christ from his birth to his ministry, that in-between time. It doesn't give us a whole lot of information. But what it does give us, kind of just, I mean, blow, it, it floors me, it dumbfounds me, in Luke 2.52, it says this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, who is an incarnate God, who is God in flesh, son of God, increased in wisdom and in knowledge. See, because he had to become man, he had to go through everything man goes through, but yet without sin, which means he, he had to learn, he had to grow. How dare I look at that verse and say, yes, but I don't. There's no need for me to grow in my wisdom and knowledge. And you know, if the Bible gives us no other exhortation to grow that right, there would be reason enough to follow in our Lord's footsteps. But God, God is clear in his word. Colossians 1, 9, 10 says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 2 Peter 3, 18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him to be the glory now and and to the day of eternity, amen. Second Peter 1, 5, for this reason we make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. I got to feed Cohen for the first time on Christmas Eve. Um, he's a breastfed baby, and so finally um, I got to feed him with the bottle, and, and it was such a cool experience. And, uh, you know, it was in the middle of a, a gift exchange and, you know, family giving me gifts, saying open them up. And I was like, ah, hands are full, can't. And he's sitting there, just, he's so cute. I mean, he's my baby, of course, and he's cute. And, 
And it was just, it was awesome. But you know, there will come a time when my son drinking from a bottle is no longer cute. There will come a time when it becomes a little disturbing. There will come a time when that milk will no longer provide him with the nutrients he needs. There will come a time where he will crave more, and he should. We should. And you know, I don't mind holding him and doing nothing else and and giving my time and feeding him because he's a baby. That's what he needs. But there needs to come a time where he's self-efficient, where he can feed himself, especially if Lily and I are blessed with other kids. We'll have to feed other babies. There needs to come a time of his growth. And Lily will take him to the pediatrics tomorrow morning and, and one of the first things they will do is take my son and lay him and weigh him and measure him because they expect growth. And as, a bitter, as bittersweet it is for Lily and I, we want him to grow. His growth is an indication of proper nourishment. We expect him to grow. Christian, we are expected to grow. It is an indication of proper nourishment. It is time we move on to the solid food. And here's the thing, like I said before, we're not all called to be preachers, but all believers are called to proclaim the gospel. And if one needs basic truths, milk, explained to them, then you know they're not explaining it to others, therefore not fulfilling the Great Commission. May our cry be that of the psalmist in Psalm 119.10 says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes with my lips. I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. May that be our cry. It should be the cry. I want us to see now the need for growth. Verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Everyone who lives on milk, referring to those who are immature in the faith, those that are 20, 30-year-old spiritual babies, those that we just got done addressing in verse 12. Child, a child has no skills. They may have talents. They may have abilities. They may be naturally um, able to do things, but a skill is something that you develop. A skill is something that you take that talent, you take that natural ability, and and you put it into practice. You fine-tune it. That is a skill. Someone may be more natural at playing the drums than others, but that does not mean that they are skilled in playing the drums. It takes time. It takes hours of of tuning. And that gives us a little bit clearer view of what these Christians were, who these Christians were. They were the ones who were hearers and not doers as described in James 1. These Jewish recipients acknowledged the truth intellectually but never truly embraced it and put it into practice. How do we know this? How could they? You cannot put into practice that which you are ignorant of. You will not put it into practice. We own a Bible. We will, we will state our claim that this is the word of God and that we love it and that we, we base our life off of this book. How many Christians have read it all? And I, and I don't mean to, to 
come down on you. And, and, but how can we say yes? We, we, we base my, I base my life off this book. I haven't read it all. But I mean, it, it's my life. We, we treat the Bible as a new terms and conditions when every time your software updates, you just scroll through and hit agree at the bottom, right? We don't read that. That's how we treat the word of God. You say you base the life of the word of God, but you've never read it all the way through and you have no intentions to. There's not a desire to. This passage, passage is about those who have heard the truth, been taught the gospel, and who have sat on it. You may have said a prayer, but it has had no further impact on you. That word, unskilled, that, that's the word that just jumped out at me. Unskilled. We are to have a skilled in our Christian walk. I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever noticed the language the Apostle Paul uses when describing the Christian life. He talks about himself and the Christian walk like an athlete training. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10 says, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself to godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Verse 10, for this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Jude in Jude 1, 3 says, I find it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Now let me ask you, discipline, training and godliness, toil and striving, fighting, keeping the faith, contending for the faith, does that describe your walk? Does that describe my walk? Does that describe the walk of the American church today? It does not, because I guarantee you that we would not be where we were. That America would not be the way it is if Christians, if the church all had discipline and training and godliness, if we toiled and strived and contended for the faith. And this is Apostle Paul speaking here. I mean, if anyone you would think that could maybe sit back and relax and be like, no, I got this. It would be this man. I mean, he knew a lot. And yet this is his language that he uses in his Christian walk. I read my devotional every day, though. And we wonder why we, we doubt and we, and we backslide on the most trivial and minute things. There is such a need for growth in this world that we live in now. Why? Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are at war. We don't think that, though. How many of us would, would say that our Christian walk feels as though we're at war. I can tell you right now that writing this sermon for the past three weeks has been a battle. And it was the holidays, but man, it seemed like every time I, I, I told Lily I need to step away and, and, and go into study and spend some time studying and, and preparing, someone would knock at the door. Someone would call us. The baby would cry. And I really felt like, man, someone doesn't really not want me to, to be in this study. <clears throat> this is one thing that the enemy has, has definitely succeeded in making us blind to. The fact that we are at war. But we don't see our life as a spiritual battlefield. 
This is why Paul uses the terminology that he uses to prepare himself. And he tells us to prepare ourselves for the battle that lay ahead. But not only are we going into battle unskilled, we're going into battle with no shield and no sword. I hear about all these decisions for Christ that some of these mega churches put out there. These, these, uh, they have these plays and or these events in which they say, "Oh, a thousand decisions for Christ made, or you know, a thousand converts, a hundred, whatever it be." But it ends there. There is no discipleship. There is no. There is no following up. There is no equipping and training of the saints. What good is a vast army if they are unskilled and unarmed? It is tough, trust me. I mean, I, I exhaust myself at times trying to, to combat those who, who are atheists, who do not believe in the existence of God. And, and I try to, to equip myself in, in, in apologetics and, and answering and, and being able to give a reason for the faith and hope that is in me. And then I learn about other religions that, that, that do believe in God but have completely twisted like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam and, and learn the faith. So when they come and talk to me, I, I'm able to, to not debate but reason with them and talk to them. And there are those who, who do believe in the God of the Bible, but who misconstrue his words so much and worship him in such a, a horrible way. And all along, battling against my own sin and, and flesh, it's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting, but that's spiritual warfare. I tell my youth all the time, listen guys, we, we can meet on Wednesday nights and we can have pizza and we can screw around and we can call it fellowship. But you don't understand what lies outside the doors when you leave here. How upset would you guys be if you were drafted into the war and you get to boot camp, and your, your training instructor said, listen, we don't want you to hate this place. We want you to be comfortable. We don't want you to leave with a sour taste in your mouth and be mad at us. So just do what you like. We're here to cater to you. And then your six months is up, and... and you get dropped off in the middle of a battle and you have not been trained one ounce in the art of war. How many of us would be, well, at least, at least they cared enough about me and that I was comfortable. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to shoot back at my enemy, but, you know, I just had a good time this last six months. That is why I, it is my goal to equip our youth here. It's why we, we study books of the Bible. It is why we, we go over scripture, how to study the Bible, doc, Bible doctrine and apologetics. My goal in the youth is to glorify God by equipping his youth. That when they leave here, they are self-efficient. That they know how to read the Bible for themselves. That they know how to study the Bible. And they know how to give a reason for the faith and hope that is in them. I try to teach them what to look for when they do go off to college. When they do move away. What to look for in a church. What a healthy church looks like. We must not continue in our unskillful ways. We are unskilled, untrained, ill-equipped, and that's why we do not evangelize when opportunities come literally knocking on our door on Saturday mornings. Every one of us should be blacklisted. If you guys don't know what that means, it, when Mormons and, and Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they realize that you know stuff, they blacklist you. They won't come to your door anymore. But instead, we, 
we hide behind the couches and, and pretend we're not home. Or we open the door and, and take their pamphlet and say, okay, and, and let them go on. Instead of reasoning with them, instead of going over scripture, instead of taking that opportunity that literally knocked on your door, we let it slip by. Why? Because we are not confident in the truth of God because we are unskilled. That is why we do not evangelize. We must not continue in our unskillful ways. If one is ignorant and unskilled with the basics and gospel truths, how can they be living them out? And make no mistake of it, it is noticed by the outside world. It is noticed by the enemy. Um, Larry uh, Poston, author of The Gospel for Islam, Reaching Muslims in North America, states this observation that modern Muslims make of modern Christians. He says, when a Muslim views a Christian, he sees a person who wears his Christianity like a casual garment, useful for show on certain occasions, but tossed aside when not needed. He sees Christians as captives of materialistic culture that has co-opted Christianity by marketing Christian music, books, clothing, and other paraphernalia, end quote. This is tragically true. This is how the world sees us. Verse 14, but solid food is for mature. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I would like for us to see the revelation of growth. Solid food or strong meat pertains to those who are mature in the faith, those that have put their faith into practice and trained themselves in the word. I cannot help but to think of the Bereans in Acts 17 who received their word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice that the powers of discernment help distinguish good from evil. Here's a good example. I had a gentleman a few months after the last presidential election who I thought to be a Christian because, well, he told me he was a Christian. And was a little upset with the outcome of the presidential election and began to say that one of the things he was really upset about was, was Christians. I said, why so? He says, well, the thing that irritates me is that Christians didn't vote for Mitt Romney because he's Mormon. I said, well, you know, that, that is kind of a dumb reason not to vote for him because, I mean, it's not like Barack Obama was a Christian. You know, we, we don't always have the option of voting for someone who ha- shares the same f- um, views as us and faith as us. Um, but we do vote for those who are best suited to lead us in the most godliest way. And he says, yeah, it's so dumb that they, they didn't vote. And it's irritating. They didn't vote for him because he was Mormon. I mean, Mormon Christian, it's the same thing. It's the same dang thing. the same thing. There is a perfect example of an unskilled, dull-hearing Christian unable to distinguish good from evil. 2 Peter 3.16 says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which they're ignorant, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. Ephesians 4.14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, dullness in our hearing results in erroneous belief. I see this in my own life. When I look back on my life five years ago and ways that I thought it was okay to live as a Christian, ways to do ministry, ways to evangelize. Whatever gets them in the door, that was my, that was my view. I kind of had that seeker-sensitive, you know, uh, perceptiveness. But, you know, I look and I'm like, man, all the things that have been revealed to me through my growth, and it's all to the glory of God and, and due to him. 
this is why there are so many different false religions out there, ladies and gentlemen. And, and a lot of false religions is based out of truth. You know, Colby told me this a little bit back ago. He said that, that's the most um, you know, dangerous ones, the ones that you know, is 90% truth. It's got just that 10% of air. And it's so true. You know, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of, of, these, of these religions, they are based in Christianity. But somewhere along the way, someone came along and, and twisted the scriptures to fit their views and got people who are unskilled and ignorant and unable to distinguish good from evil to follow them. And they go to whatever tickles their ears. Growth in the truth reveals falsehood and other teachings. That's what growth does. But I come to my final point. The biggest revelation that our growth gives us is that we belong to God. The biggest revelation that our growth gives us is that we belong to God. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those that live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Earlier I spoke about Cohen's growth as a, as a sign of proper nourishment. Now we don't tell Cohen what to eat. He tells us, unfortunately. He naturally knows, and we don't have to convince him that milk is what he wants or needs. He naturally craves that which nourishes him. I love having a kid. It opens a whole new realm of analogies that I get to use <laughs> in school. When one comes to a genuine faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit immediately indwells and seals that person. It is the business of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. And I refuse, I refuse to believe that if you call yourself a Christian and you have God in you, the Holy Spirit in you, I refuse to believe that you can go unchanged. I refuse to believe that you can go without the word of God for the Holy Spirit craves the things of God. Now, it doesn't happen like that. You don't change like that, but that is what growth does. It happens at a gradual rate. The Holy Spirit desires to make us more like Christ. Now, I want to be careful here. And I don't mean to say because you didn't read your Bible yesterday that you're a bad Christian or maybe you're not a Christian. I, I don't mean to. We all stumble. We all battle against the flesh but one cannot have the Holy Spirit within them and remain as they are. It should be very evident. It's the greatest revelation that our growth gives us. It is why Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. In the parable of the tenants that was read before by Paul, um, most of Jesus' parables have to do with salvation. And those tenants, much like the, the parable of the virgins before it, they don't represent those that are blatant unbelievers. They represent those who, who claim to be believers, those who are in the church, those who are receiving the things of God, those who sit in those chairs now. Those are some that receive the things of the Lord and, and they, they take it and they, they make it prosper in their lives. They make it prosper in other lives. They, they make it grow. And there are some who go dig a hole and sit on it. You sit there and nod your head in agreement with the teachings of God, but you just continue on the exact same way you arrived. The unfaithful tenant gets the punishment of an unbeliever. Hell. Why? Because that is what he is. 
Unfaithfulness is the behavior of an unbeliever. Unfaithfulness is a behavior of an unbeliever. You see, there's, there's no big theological reason that I can give you today why you're not in the word of God. Why you don't pray. Why you don't crave these things. There's no big theological reason I can give you. You don't pray You're not in the word of God. You're not serving. You're not giving because they're not important to you. Simply enough, it's just not important to you. And could it be that the reason you don't desire nor crave the things that are essential to the life of a Christian be because you do not have the life of Christ in you? Now, I hope that's no one in this room. That's why I've called us to examine ourselves today. To assess this past year. To assess the year to come. How many of us would be willing to stand before God in judgment right now? How many of us would be able to I'm willing to stand before God and give, give an account for the life that we've lived, the time that we spent. I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of us who are just going to be simply embarrassed. Myself included. Not the things that I spend my time on, the things that I, I allow myself to get distracted by. And I know that there, there are some of us who have been faithfully serving, who have been faithfully growing. And I tell you this much, when it comes to, to Phil and the elders, there's no greater pleasure that we see. It is it's what God uses to, to energize us again, the elders, to, to continue on. And for those of us who, who are growing and who are giving and who are serving who are treading it out in the trenches, I give you the same encouragement that the Apostle, gives, the Apostle Paul gives in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The 12th chapter of Hebrew begins with these encouraging words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God we do not strive and toil to earn salvation we do not strive and toil because because you know it merits us anything and puts us in favor of God. We strive and toil because we look at Christ who gave up everything. We love him because he first loved us. That is our reason. That is our motivation. That's why Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says to set our minds on the things above. Set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on what's already been done for you. There is no greater motivation. We love him because he first loved us. As we transition into uh, communion, I uh, give, give warning to those who may be here and maybe have convictions for First uh, Corinthians 11. It says, for, when concerning communion, it says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discern, uh, discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
examine ourselves this morning. Examine ourselves this last year. Assess 2015. As we go into the new year, as we walk out those doors, let's continue and hit the ground running. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for this time of your word. God, I, I pray for forgiveness in, in my own life, Lord, of the times that I have been unfaithful with the word, with what you have given me. And how many opportunities I have let go by where I did not proclaim your truth because I was ignorant and unskilled in them. I pray that God, anyone being convicted, now do not walk out those doors unchanged. Lord, I uh, pray for this time to be an encouragement for us all, a time that we get to just revel in what you've done and be built up and encouraged and, and to go out and proclaim the gospel that is so desperately needed outside those doors. That is so desperately needed right here in our own lives, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be with us now, Lord. We, we praise you and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.